The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. July 16th, 1945, at 5.29 a.m. in New Mexico, the first dropping of an atomic bomb, and August 6th, 1945, the dropping of an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, August 9th, 1945, the dropping of the atomic bomb on Nagasaki. Uh, It turns out that it's a good thing that I probably won't have time to put together a new episode here in the month of August because around this time I usually post uh, the episodes that I put together on the atomic bomb. Um, Just to remind those who weren't around last year at this time, it's basically a series of hundreds or so quotations from five or six books about the people who realized that an atomic bomb was possible, the ones who decided that a project like the Manhattan Project should go forward, uh, the ones who worked on it, who developed the bomb, and finally those who decided to drop it, and also some words from those who had the bomb uh, dropped on them and who survived. Um, That is what we will hear, and I think, um, to use Toni Morrison's phrase about uh, whether or not it was difficult for her to write about slavery, as she said, all I had to do was write it. I didn't have to live it. Um, Well, in the case of the atomic bomb, um, all we have to do is listen to the voices. We don't have to make the decisions. We can protest the decisions or support the decision, but um, we don't have to live through making the decision, and we don't have to hopefully ever live through having such a thing happen to us. So I think it's worthwhile to do that, to never forget August 6th and August 9th, and let me get it right, November or July 16th, 19. 45. Um, I should say that the very last section of these episodes, the one where I sort of give my own conclusions, needs some work, and I considered dropping it from this episode entirely, but it would, uh, uh, the episode would end too abruptly for that, and so I won't do it. We'll just assume that these issues are a work in progress to begin with, so you will bear with me with, uh, how uh, odd, I suppose, that section might sound. It might not sound odd at all. But I think it's also important to post this here now because the first trailer for Christopher Nolan's movie, Oppenheimer, uh, just went live a few days ago, and I hope, and it seems like a good chance, that he will have made uh, a great movie out of this subject, the kind of movie that it deserves. And I also thought that this was a good place before we get to all the voices, all the first-person voices from that time, to post here 
a short poem that I wrote about uh, Robert Oppenheimer, and it's one that I'm one of my favorite poems to have written, especially because this subject has so obsessed me. And I think that I was able to get a great deal of Oppenheimer in just two stanzas. And so here is that poem, and following on that are the first voices, you might say, of the atomic age. Robert Oppenheimer. Now I come to write in light and fire, in a language of power we all know, beyond every letter and poetry, and all the dithering of philosophy, all the prevarication of politics. The physicists have known sin, it's true, but also the brilliance of a burden overcome in the ageless mountains, a foul display that was beyond awesome, beyond my conscience, but still atop it. In less than a second, tens of thousands turned to piles of boiled organs and black char, the burnt but still living running for the cisterns or the boiled, dead, crowded rivers. News of a flood or an earthquake makes me think of myself, since the questions tendered to heaven are now given to me, and its silence is something like my own. Any remorse is just ridiculous, and any warning is usefully late, since I've already handled God's fuel. I cannot keep from swagger or from mourning. This knowledge, a weight you will never know, and with it a satisfaction, a pride, numbers and elements resolved into a thing that worked, but never should again. I think it was 1991 or so that I first really became aware of the atomic bomb. It was back when James Cameron's Terminator 2 was coming out, and back then you could only see the equivalent of DVD extras on HBO or Cinemax or something like that, where they would talk about the making of the movie. And I remember James Cameron being very solemn and talking about the scene where uh, there's an atomic explosion in Los Angeles and how it wasn't a very pleasant time filming the end of the world or some phrase he used like that. And then about five or six years later, I attended a, uh, a creative writing camp uh, at the end of high school and I met a poet there named John Bradley, really the first poet uh, who wasn't uh, long dead that I, that I ever knew about. Uh, and the first one certainly that I ever met. And John Bradley had a book that he had edited called Atomic Ghosts. And it is an anthology of uh, mostly American poets, if I remember right, and their response to the atomic age and the atomic bomb. And he 
told the class, this is kids going into their senior year of high school as I was, that he had the inspiration to put the book together because he was teaching a class or he was in a school visiting a class of kids about the same age and there was someone there who made the remark of what was Hiroshima, what was Nagasaki. And he thought it was important enough to uh, help fill that gap by doing so with poetry. And really, ever since then, I, I bought a copy of the book, and that, and that I'm pretty sure, is the first book of poetry I ever owned, was this book called Atomic Ghosts. I think it's out of print, but you can probably get a copy for a few dollars these days. Um, and I'm pretty sure that that is what kept the atomic bomb in my mind ever since. When I moved away from home a few years after that, five or six years later, and I moved to Macon, Georgia to research my Civil War poem, um, one of the first places I went to, obviously, probably even before I went to look for a job, was the library. And the one of the first DVDs I ever took out of there was uh, a documentary by John Else from 1980 called The Day After Trinity. And that, uh, and that is about the Trinity test that led to uh, the uh, bombings of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, or actually, it's not about the Trinity test, it's about everything that led up to it and then the bombings. And that solidified uh, Robert Oppenheimer and that whole drama in my mind as being something that I needed to write about. Or if I couldn't write about it, at least know more and more and more about it if I could. And a few years ago, I even posted uh, John Els's documentary on YouTube. And so far, no one has taken it down. So I will also post a link to that in the post description here. In the intervening years, I ended up reading uh, a handful of books about the atomic bomb, and I will uh, list them off here. Uh, Richard Rhodes, The Making of the Atomic Bomb, and then its sequel, Dark Sun, The Making of the Hydrogen Bomb. There is Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin's American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer, and Peter Goodchild's book, J. Robert Oppenheimer, Shatterer of Worlds. Now, I can't write a book like that, like, like any of those books. Uh, I don't have the equipment or the knowledge for it, the scientific knowledge for it. Um, I have written one small poem about Robert Oppenheimer, and I tried to write a play about it, but that didn't work. And I was struggling for a while to figure out what can I do with this interest and with this uh, astounding and important topic in history, especially in American history, what can I do with this that no one else has done? And uh, a few years ago, the solution I came up with was to uh, just take out the quotations from the people who lived through the experience and who made the decisions. Uh, organize them in some uh, coherent fashion and just present the quotations to see how it happened that America went from uh, being a country that 
deplored the use of bombing uh, of bombs on civilians on, and on civilian targets to being able to firebomb Tokyo and then uh, drop the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki a few years later. Um, the way I just put that might make it sound as if uh, I'm against all those things. Uh, at the end of the day, I'm not really sure that I am. And, and I also don't think that presenting these quotations isn't, is also, is either an excuse uh, to present my opinion on things. I think it's important to just present what these people said as they were living through the process and as they were making the decisions. I think that's the important thing to see and uh, to withhold judgment and to withhold criticism even from uh, uh, a decision as momentous as this. And then it's also worth uh, considering that most of the huge events in history that depended upon the decisions of a very few people, it's worth considering that those are as difficult and that they aren't, uh, they aren't worthy of a snap judgment of any kind, the kind of snap judgments that we seem to make about absolutely everything today, if only because uh, Twitter and Facebook and the rest of it and cable news and everything else you can imagine only has space for snap or hip or fashionable judgments. So with that out of the way, the, the, very first, uh, the very first collection of quotations. And I, uh, I posted all of these on my blog many years ago. And if, if uh, the text is still up there, I will post a link there as well. And I separated, it, separated this collection of quotations into five days and just called it Week of the Bomb. And I will see if I can do that over the next five days here and just read them out. The very first comes from Franklin Roosevelt on September 1st, 1939, and this is what he says. The ruthless bombing from the air of civilians in unfortified centers of population during the course of the hostilities which have raged in various quarters of the earth during the past few years, and which has resulted in the maiming and in the death of thousands of defenseless men, women, and children, has sickened the hearts of every civilized man and woman, and has profoundly shocked the conscience of humanity. If resort is had to this form of inhuman barbarism during the period of the tragic conflagration with which the world is now confronted, hundreds of thousands of innocent human beings who have no responsibility for, and who are not even remotely participating in, the hostilities which have now broken out, will lose their lives. I am therefore addressing this urgent appeal to every government which may be engaged in hostilities publicly to affirm its determination that its armed, that its armed forces shall in no event, and under no circumstances, undertake the bombardment from the air of civilian populations or of unfortified cities upon the understanding that these same rules of warfare will be scrupulously observed by all their opponents. I request an immediate reply. And of course, if 
someone with an agenda was quoting that, they would say, uh, look at how hypocritical America ended up being. Uh, to my mind, though, the idea that Franklin Roosevelt actually believed that there would be an understanding uh, between any two nations uh, leading up to World War II and then into it, that they would uh, desist from making or using uh, weapons um, is kind of ridiculous. Uh, I don't think that he took this uh, request seriously. Um, and of course, he's not even talking about atomic weapons at this time. He's probably just talking about uh, especially the German uh, bombardment of Spain and Guernica and, uh, and other in such incidents. And here is the second quotation. Here is Richard Rhodes summarizing the early opinion on the bombing of civilians. He says, one of Franklin Roosevelt's first acts was to appeal to the belligerents to refrain from bombing civilian populations. Revulsion against the bombing of cities had grown in the United States since at least the Japanese bombing of Shanghai in 1937. When Spanish fascists bombed Barcelona in March of 1938, Secretary of State Cordell Hull condemned the atrocity publicly by saying, quote, No theory of war can justify such conduct. I feel that I am speaking for the whole American people. And in June, the Senate passed a resolution condemning the, quote, inhuman bombing of civilian populations, end quote. And then there is the May 27, 1943 order from British Bomber Command on the destruction of Hamburg, and this is well into World War II, obviously. It says, the importance of Hamburg, the second largest city in Germany, with a population of one and a half million, is well known. The total destruction of this city would achieve immeasurable results in reducing the industrial capacity of the enemy's war machine. This, together with the effect on German morale, which would be felt throughout the country, would play a very important part in shortening and winning the war. The mission is to destroy Hamburg. And this is a remark of a lieutenant on the bombing of Hamburg. The burning of Hamburg that night was remarkable in that I saw not many fires but one. Set in the darkness was a turbulent dome of bright red fire, lighted and ignited like the glowing heart of a vast brazier. I saw no flames, no outlines of buildings, only brighter fires which flared like yellow torches against the background of bright red ash. Above the city was a misty red haze. I looked down, fascinated but aghast, satisfied yet horrified. I had never seen a fire like that before and was never to see its like again. And here are the words of a 19-year-old in Hamburg. We got to the Loschplatz all right, but I couldn't go on across to the Eifestrasse because the asphalt had melted. There were people on the roadway, some already dead, some still lying alive but stuck in the asphalt. They must have rushed onto the roadway without thinking. Their feet had got stuck 
and then they had put out their hands to try to get out again. They were on their hands and knees screaming. And this is a 15-year-old in Hamburg. Four-story high blocks of flats the next day were like glowing mounds of stone right down to the basement. Everything seemed to have melted and pressed the bodies away in front of it. Women and children were so charred as to be unrecognizable. Their brains had tumbled from their burst temples and their insides from the soft parts under the ribs. How terribly these people must have died. The small children lay like eels on the pavement. And here is Richard Rhodes describing the bombing of Hamburg. The firestorm completely burned out some eight square miles of the city, an area about half as large as Manhattan. The bodies of the dead cooked in pools of their own melted fat, in sealed shelters like kilns, or shriveled to small blackened bundles that littered the streets. Bomber Command killed at least 45,000 Germans that night, the majority of them old people, women, and children. The bombing of Hamburg was hardly unique. It was one atrocity in a war of increasing atrocities. Between 1941 and 1943, the German army on the Eastern Front captured and enclosed in prisoner-of-war camps without food or shelter some two million Soviet soldiers. At least one million of them died of exposure and starvation. During the same period, the final solution to the Jewish question, the vast Nazi program to exterminate the European Jews, began in deadly earnest after the Wannsee Conference of Coordinating Agencies met in suburban Berlin on January 20th, 1942. Whatever moral issues such atrocities raise, they resulted from the progressive escalation of war by all its belligerents in pursuit of victory. Even the final solution, because the Nazis believed that the Jews constituted a separate nation, lodged subversively in their midst, nationality being defined in the Nazi canon primarily in terms of race, and as such the nation with which the Third Reich was preeminently at war. It was Hitler's particular perversity to divine victory over the Jews as extermination. The Allies in their defensive war against Germany and Japan wanted only total surrender, in return for which the mass killing of combatants and civilians would stop. And here is Kurt Vonnegut in his novel Slaughterhouse-Five on the bombing of Dresden. He was present at the bombing of Dresden as a, a POW, I believe. Every day we walked into the city and dug into basements and shelters to get the corpses out as a sanitary measure. When we went into them, a typical shelter, an ordinary basement usually, looked like a streetcar full of people who had simultaneously had heart failure just people sitting there in their chairs, all dead. A firestorm is an amazing thing. It doesn't occur in nature. It's fed by the tornadoes that occur in the midst of it, and there isn't a damned thing to breathe. We brought the dead out. 
They were loaded on wagons and taken to parks, large open areas in the city which weren't filled with rubble. The Germans got funeral pyres going, burning the bodies to keep them from stinking and from spreading disease. 130,000 corpses were hidden underground. It was a terribly elaborate Easter egg hunt. We went to work through cordons of German soldiers. Civilians didn't get to see what we were up to. And after a few days, the city began to smell, and a new technique was invented. Necessity is the mother of invention, and so we would bust into the shelter, gather up valuables from people's laps without attempting identification, and turn the valuables over to guards. Then soldiers would come with a flamethrower and stand in the door and cremate the people inside. Get the gold and jewelry out and then burn everybody inside. And now we come back to Franklin Roosevelt a few years after his first remark, and he says, We must face the fact that modern warfare, as conducted in the Nazi manner, is a dirty business. We don't like it. We didn't want to get in it. But we are in it, and we're going to fight it with everything we've got. And uh, many of the quotations to follow here will come from Air Force General Curtis LeMay. Uh, and whatever you think of him, I at least respect uh, his clarity and uh, his honesty. Um, he is uh, not going to sugarcoat anything. So this is Air Force General Curtis LeMay, father of strategic bombing, on the firebombing of Japanese cities prior to the dropping of the atomic bomb. He says, no matter how you slice it, you're going to kill an awful lot of civilians, thousands and thousands. But if you don't destroy the Japanese industry, we're going to have to invade Japan. And how many Americans will be killed in an invasion of Japan? 500,000 seems to be the lowest estimate. Some say a million. We're at war with Japan. We were attacked by Japan. Do you want to kill Japanese, or would you rather have Americans killed? And here is Richard Rhodes on strategic bombing. The strategic bombing survey estimates that, quote, probably more persons lost their lives by fire at Tokyo in a six-hour period than at any equivalent of time in the history of man. You read that again. That's incredible. Probably more persons lost their lives by fire at Tokyo in a six-hour period than at any equivalent period of time in the history of man, end quote. The firestorm at Dresden may have killed more people, but not in so short a space of time. More than 100,000 men, women, and children died in Tokyo on the night of March 9th to the 10th, 1945. A million were injured, at least 41,000 seriously. A million in all lost their homes. 2,000 tons of incendiaries delivered that punishment. In modern notation, that is two kilotons. But the wind, not the weight of the bombs alone, created the conflagration. And therefore, the efficiency of the slaughter was in some sense still in part an act of God. 
And here is Curtis LeMay again. He says, Killing Japanese didn't bother me very much at that time. It was getting the war over that bothered me. So I wasn't worried particularly how many people we killed and getting the job done. I suppose if I had lost the war, I would have been tried as a war criminal. Fortunately, we were on the winning side. Incidentally, everybody bemoans the fact that we dropped the atomic bomb and killed a lot of people at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That, I guess, is immoral, but nobody says anything about the incendiary attacks on every industrial city in Japan. And the first attack on Tokyo killed more people than the atomic bomb did. Apparently, that was all right. I guess the direct answer to your question is yes, every soldier thinks something of the moral aspects of what he is doing. But all war is immoral. And if you let that bother you, you are not a good soldier. And uh, for anyone out there who hasn't seen it already, uh, the documentary, Errol Morris's documentary, The Fog of War, uh, where he interviews uh, Robert McNamara, not just about his Vietnam career, but his time with Curtis LeMay uh, and the bombing of Japan, um, is, uh, is required viewing in this case. Uh, when Curtis LeMay says that we, uh, that we uh, I'm speaking as an American here, uh, carried out incendiary attacks on every industrial city in Japan, there's a wonderful sequence in The Fog of War where it goes through the, the 30 or so, whatever it was, two dozen or 30 cities that were firebombed in Japan. And it gives their population count and then it flashes to an equivalent American city. Um, for me anyway, uh, Errol Morris, I suppose, was, was making that comparison to say, I suppose, that this should not be done. Or it's very hard not to take uh, uh, the uh, regretful words of an aging Robert McNamara coupled with a Philip Glass score and wonderful filmmaking to make it seem as if that's the point he's making. Um, I just take it as more evidence that, as LeMay says, all war is immoral. Um, but that's not a reason not to fight a war. Uh, I'm not a very good liberal poet in this way, believing these things. Um, and I think it's just incredible that he could say, I suppose if I had lost the war, I would have been tried as a war criminal. We need to be able to hear that and understand that, especially Americans do. This is a complex thing. And here is Air Force General Curtis LeMay one more time tonight, justifying the bombing of cities and civilians because they were all obviously working for the war effort. He says, all you had to do was visit one of those targets after we'd roasted it and see the ruins of a multitude of tiny houses with a drill press sticking up through the wreckage of every home. The entire population got into the act and work to make those airplanes or munitions of war, men, women, and children. We knew we were going to kill a lot of women and kids when we burned a town. Had to be done. 
Uh, I don't know how accurate that is. Um, that could just be him stepping back and trying to justify it. But, uh, but by that logic, uh, I'm sure that uh, if someone had decided to firebomb San Francisco or Charlotte or uh, uh, Tallahassee, uh, they probably would have justified it by saying, look at, uh, look at what these people were doing for the war effort, even if they weren't actually fighting. Um, that seems to be beside the point to the general immorality that LeMay is talking about. And here is uh, American Secretary of War Henry Stimson on the difficulty of precision bombing of cities with manufacturing sites spread out everywhere, talking about how hard it is to just bomb the manufacturing sites when they are so close to cities. He says, uh, I told him how, how, how I was trying to hold off the Air Force. I'm sorry, let me start that again. I told him how I was trying to hold the Air Force down to precision bombing, but that with the Japanese method of scattering its manufacture, it was rather difficult to prevent area bombing. I told him I was anxious about this feature of the war for two reasons. First, because I did not want to have the United States get the reputation for outdoing Hitler in atrocities. And second, I was a little feature that bef it was a little feature that before we could get ready, the Air Force might have Japan so thoroughly bombed out that this new weapon we were working on would not have a fair background to show its strength. So right there is the complexity as well. You have someone like Stimson um, trying to make uh, what we might think of as a humane argument, but then he comes around again to the, uh, to the political one, which is we want uh, uh, virgin territory for this bomb that we're working on to see what it really does. And here is uh, Robert Oppenheimer recalling the words of Secretary of War Henry Stimson, which says, in which he said uh, that he thought it was, quote, appalling that there should be no protest over the air raids which we were conducting against Japan which in the case of Tokyo led to such extraordinary heavy loss of life. He didn't say that airstrikes shouldn't be carried on, but he did think there was something wrong with a country where no one questioned that. And I thought at one point that I would try and read two of these in one night, but I think given the material that's not a realistic thing to do. It should be taken in small doses. So hopefully tomorrow um, I will finally get to the physicists and the scientists working at Los Alamos and as well as uh, uh, the politicians, especially Truman, on the creation of the atomic bomb and the, uh, and the decision to actually use it. Until then. So here's the second part of Week of the Bomb. 
Following on the uh, episode from a few days ago, here are the voices of those scientists and politicians who admit the horror of the atomic bomb, but who saw it as unavoidable, who felt caught up and even powerless in the equally inevitable march of scientific discovery, and even those who think that such a horrible weapon would actually put an end to war altogether. I guess I can start with that last point first. Uh, it does set the context a little bit, and I'll just read, uh, before I get to the quotations, I'll just read part of uh, another essay of mine, and this is about uh, the use of uh, poison gas in uh, World War I. Uh, according to one section of the Hague Declarations of 1899 concerning asphyxiating gases, many countries, including the various European nations that eventually came against one another, in World War I, agreed to ban projectiles, the sole object of which is the diffusion of asphyxiating or deleterious gases. Nevertheless, in 1914, the French became the first to ignore this declaration, using tear gas and rifled grenades against the Germans. A few months later, in early 1915, the Germans used tear gas and artillery shells against the Russians, although the weather was too cold for the gas. To be effective. On April 22nd, the Germans used chlorine gas against the British and French forces at Ypres, doing so more, quote, successfully than their previous attempt with tear gas. And since the success of gas warfare depended almost exclusively on which way the wind was blowing, quite literally, the horrified Germans who came upon their poisoned enemies were themselves worried about catching up to the cloud. Richard Rhodes describes the scene at Ypres. A greenish-yellow cloud hissed from nozzles and drifted on the wind across no man's land. It blanketed the ground, flowed in craters, over the rotting bodies of the dead, through the wide brambles of barbed wire, drifted them across the sandbagged allied parapets, and on the trench walls past the fire steps filled the trenches, found dugouts and deep shelters, and the men who breathed it screamed in pain and choked. It was chlorine gas, caustic and asphyxiating. It smelled as chlorine smells and burned as chlorine burns. Massive, masses of Africans and Canadians stumbled back in retreat. Other masses, surprised and utterly uncomprehending, staggered out of the trenches into no man's land. Men clawed at their throats, stuffed their mouths with shirt tails or scarves, tore the dirt with their bare hands, and buried their faces in the earth. They writhed in agony, ten thousand of them, serious casualties, and five thousand others died. Entire divisions abandoned the line, which I suppose was the point. Uh, end quote from Richard Rhodes. Uh, Fritz Haber, a German chemist and winner of the 1918 Nobel Prize for his research in the production of fertilizers, is better known for his work in developing chemical weapons of this kind. Only ten days after this first chlorine attack, to which Haber's work contributed, his wife, also a chemist and the first woman to earn a PhD from the University of Breslau, committed suicide over her objections to her husband's work. A colleague recalled Haber's justification for this work. Quote, 
He explained to me that the Western Fronts, which were all bogged down, could be got moving again only by means of new weapons. One of the weapons contemplated was poison gas. When I objected that this was a mode of warfare violating the Hague Convention, he said that the French had already started it, though not to much effect, by using rifled ammunition filled with gas. Besides, it was a way of saving countless lives if it meant that the war could be brought to an end sooner." End quote. This rationalization, which recommended, in other words, to let a good number of soldiers die immediately, rather than scores more in continued stalemate in the trenches, was used just as ridiculously before and after World War I. After the Civil War, in which the machine gun bearing his name had been put to use, Richard J. Gatling recalled, quote, It occurred to me that if I could invent a machine, a gun, which could, by its rapidity of fire, enable one man to do as much battle duty as a hundred, that it would, to a large extent, supersede the necessity of large armies, and consequently exposure to battle and disease would be greatly diminished. And a version of this excuse was also used from the 1940s onward by the scientists who developed the atomic and hydrogen bombs. J. Robert Oppenheimer, for one, was heard to say that, quote, the atomic bomb is so terrible a weapon that war is now impossible, end quote. All of them, of course, were wrong, and nowadays it is hard to see how educated men could honestly believe such nonsense. Using machine guns on human beings quickly became acceptable in war, the only reduction in large armies falling to those on the other side of the gun, and the invention of atomic weapons, rather than abolishing war, has merely made everything up to their use acceptable. And that comes from my essay, Blindness, War, and History, uh, published in the Conco River Review in the fall of 2014. I'll put a link up to that later. But I think that's worth uh, quoting. Again, not to say that uh, uh, that that I'm against the use of atomic weapons or the development of them, but just to show that the, uh, the reasons usually given um, seem a little silly to me and they have a long pedigree in the past. To get back to the scientists now, uh, the first the first time we will have heard from Robert Oppenheimer. He said, It is a profound and necessary truth that the deep things in science are not found because they are useful. They are found because it was possible to find them. And of course, reading any of the books I mentioned in uh, the post-description, where I've gathered these quotes from, um, the idea of splitting the atom uh, was found because it could be found. And only later uh, was the idea of using that energy in a weapon uh, even considered. Although I'm pretty sure, I think Oppenheimer says that uh, he gave a lecture about uh, he gave a lecture about being able to split the atom and the energy it could produce. And within uh, a very short time after that lecture, one of his students had already calculated the. Uh, the crater that could be made uh, were this put to weaponized use. 
Here is physicist Carl F. von Weissacker, who worked in the German equivalent of the Manhattan Project, and he said, To a person finding himself at the beginning of an era, its simple, simple fundamental structures may become visible like a distant landscape and a flash of a single stroke of lightning. At that time, in 1939, we were faced with a very simple logic. Wars waged with atomic bombs as regularly recurring events, that is to say, nuclear wars as institutions, do not seem reconcilable with the survival of the participating nations. But the atom bomb exists. It exists in the minds of some men. According to the historically known logic of armaments and power systems, it will soon make its physical appearance. If that is so, then the participating nations, and ultimately mankind itself, can only survive if war as an institution is abolished. And there you get the, uh, the ridiculous bit at the end. Um, it will soon make its physical appearance is the truth, and that's the unavoidable part. Uh, the, the idea of war being as an institution being abolished is not. <laughs> uh, physicist Leo Szilard in 1939, we realized that should atomic weapons be developed, no two nations would be able to live in peace with each other unless their military forces were controlled by a common higher authority. We expected these controls, if they were effective enough to abolish atomic warfare, would be effective enough to abolish also all other forms of war. This hope was almost as strong a spur to our endeavors as was our fear of becoming the victims of the enemy's atomic bombings. And Leo Zillard, by the way, is sort of the hero of Richard Rhodes' book uh, on the history of the atomic bomb. He is the one who uh, wrote the letter that I believe Einstein signed uh, and gave it to Roosevelt, letting him know that such a thing was even possible. And uh, had the earliest instance of what all of this could bring about in the future. The British chemist and physicist Francis Aston in a 1936 lecture said, there are those about us who say that such research should be stopped by law, alleging that man's destructive powers are already large enough. So no doubt the more elderly and ape-like of our prehistoric ancestors objected to the use of newly discovered agency, of that newly discovered agency, namely fire. Personally, I think there is no doubt that subatomic energy is all around us, and that one day man will release, it, release and control its almost infinite power. We cannot prevent him from doing so, and can only hope he will not use it exclusively in blowing up his next-door neighbor. That seems to be the most realistic one so far. Uh, and that's basically my point, too, at, at the end of all of this, is that uh, you set people down the road and there is no way to, to prevent them from using it for horrible ends. And so it almost becomes inevitable that the horrible ends be constructed, even if they are hardly ever used. Uh, this is from the MAUD, the MAUD report, the Military Application of Uranium Detonation, a British committee initiated before they backed the American Manhattan Project. And this report says, in spite of this very large expenditure, 
we consider that the destructive effect, both material and moral, is so great that every effort should be made to produce bombs of this kind. The material for the first bomb could be ready by the end of 1943. Even if the war should end before the bombs are ready, the effort would not be wasted, except in the unlikely event of complete disarmament, since no nation would dare to risk being caught without a weapon of such destructive capabilities. And here is Henry Stimson, believing that the bomb should be thought of, quote, not just as a new weapon merely, but as a revolutionary change in the relations of man to the universe, end quote, and that, it, and that it was, quote, a Frankenstein which would eat us up and went far beyond the needs of the present war. Frankenstein is another good way of thinking about it. Uh, it expands out and out and out and uh, eats up more time and energy and conscience than anyone could have ever expected. After all, I am doing this now, 80 years later, uh, and I don't even think uh, more than 100 people will hear this uh, for a long time, but I still feel the need to do it. It eats away at the mind once the mind latches onto it. And that's just me talking. I can't imagine what, uh, how it ate away at the minds of the scientists. One of which was, here we are, physicist Robert Wilson on why he continued work on the atomic bomb after Germany had surrendered. And he says, it was to be the end of war as we knew it. And this was the promise that was made. That is why I could continue on that project. And if you happen to watch um, John Elsa's documentary, The Day After Trinity, which uh, will be linked to again in this post description, you will see Robert Wilson in the mid to late 70s um, horrified by uh, the work that he did in uh, bringing the bomb to reality, but still, in this case, uh, able to justify it, even if it turns out his justifications were incorrect. Um, you simply can't make a promise that such a weapon will be the end of war. He's a wonderful presence in that documentary uh, about how conflicted all of this is how difficult it is. And here is President Harry Truman looking back. We regarded the matter of dropping the atomic bomb as exceedingly important. We had just gone through a bitter experience at Okinawa, which was the last major island campaign, when the Americans lost more than 12,500 men killed and missing, and the Japanese more than 100,000 killed in 82 days of fighting. This had been preceded by a number of similar experiences in other Pacific islands north of Australia. The Japanese had demonstrated in each case that they would not surrender and they would fight to the death. It was expected that resistance in Japan with their home ties would be even more severe. We had the 100,000 people killed in Tokyo in one night of conventional bombs, and that was described in the first episode and it had seemingly no effect whatsoever. It destroyed the Japanese cities, yes, but the, their morale was not affected as far as we could tell, not at all. So it seemed quite necessary, if we could, to shock them into action. We had to end the war. We had to save American lives. 
And here is Edward Teller, later the father of the hydrogen bomb, in July 1945. He initially opposed using the atomic bomb, but came to this conclusion. This is what he said. First of all, let me say that I have no hope of clearing my conscience. The things we are working on are so terrible that no amount of protesting or fiddling with politics will save our souls. But I am not really convinced of your objections. I do not feel that there is any chance to outlaw any one weapon. If we have a slim chance of survival, it lies in the, it lies in the possibility to get rid of wars. The more decisive a weapon is, the more the more decisive a weapon is, the more surely it will be used in any real conflict and no agreements will help. Our only hope is in getting the facts of our results before the people. This might help to convince everybody that the next war would be fatal. For this purpose, actual combat use might even be the best thing. And here we are back to uh, physicist Leo Zillard. If peace is organized before the bomb has penetrated the public's mind that the potentialities of atomic bombs are a reality, it will be impossible to have a peace that is based on reality. Making some allowances for the further development of the atomic bomb in the next few years, this weapon will be so powerful that there can be no peace if it is simultaneously in the possession of any two powers unless those two powers are bound by an indissoluble political union. It will hardly be possible to get political action along that line unless high-efficiency atomic bombs have actually been used in this war and the fact of their destructive power has deeply penetrated the mind of the public. So it is interesting to hear even Zillard uh, saying that and that does seem to be a general line in my own mind too, that if it hadn't been dropped when it was, uh, it would have been used at some later time after 1945, and its destructive potential would have been learned then. Um, human, human beings being what they are at their worst and most cynical, um, that is the part that seems inevitable. and. Um, it is very hard to come to any any other conclusion than that for me. Um, here is President Harry Truman's diaries during the Potsdam Conference of July through August 1945. He says, I thought of Carthage, Baalbek, Jerusalem, Rome, Atlantis, Peking, Babylon, Nineveh, Scipio, Ramses II, Titus, Herman, Sherman, Genghis Khan, Alexander, Darius the Great, but Hitler only destroyed Stalingrad and Berlin. I hope for some sort of peace, but I fear that machines are ahead of morals by some centuries, and when morals catch up, perhaps there will be no reason for any of it. And here is Winston Churchill summarizing later in his history of the Second World War. To avert a vast indefinite butchery, to bring the war to an end, to give peace to the world, to lay healing hands upon its tortured people by a manifestation of overwhelming power at the cost of a few explosives seemed, after all our toils and perils, a miracle of deliverance. 
And here's more from Truman's diaries during the Potsdam Conference. He says, We have discovered the most terrible bomb in the history of the world. It may be the fire destruction prophesied in the Euphrates Valley area after Noah and his fabulous ark. The weapon is to be used against Japan between now and August 10th. I have told the Secretary of War, Mr. Stimson, to use it so that military objectives and soldiers and sailors are the target and not women and children. Even if the Japs are savages, ruthless, merciless, and fanatic, we as the leader of the world for the common welfare cannot drop that terrible bomb on the old capital or the new. He and I are in accord. The target will be a purely military one, and we will issue a warning statement asking the Japs to surrender and save lives. I'm sure they will not do that, but we will have given them the chance. It is certainly a good thing for the world that Hitler's crowd or Stalin's did not discover this atomic bomb. It seems to be the most terrible thing ever discovered, but it can be made the most useful. So even um, assuming that Truman is being honest in his own diaries, even the president, uh, I mean, the, the scientists thought that they had been used and abused and um, lied to, and, uh, and here even the president's wishes were in the end ignored. I'm not aware that, uh, that the Japanese were ever warned about what was happening. Perhaps they were warned about the second bomb on Nagasaki. Um, and they certainly did not try to avoid women and children, unless using Curtis LeMay's uh, justifications that I mentioned in the past episode, um, any, any actions by the public to help the Japanese war effort is suddenly made them military targets, and then you can basically say, well, we'll drop that on anybody. Um, so it's nice to see that even the president's uh, wishes uh, could be sidestepped. Here is physicist Louis Alvarez after the bombs were dropped. He says, what regrets I have about being a party to killing and maiming thousands of Japanese civilians this morning are tempered with the hope that this terrible weapon we have created may bring the countries of the world together and prevent further wars. Alfred Nobel thought that his invention of high explosives would have that effect, making wars too terrible, but unfortunately it had just the opposite effect. And here is Secretary of Commerce Henry Wallace. After the bombs were dropped, and it still remained possible drop even more of them. He says, Truman said he had given orders to stop the atomic bombing. He said, the thought of wiping out another 100,000 people was too horrible. He didn't like the idea of killing, as he said, quote, all those kids. So Truman came around to seeing uh, just who uh, the bomb had been dropped on. Here is uh, Here's a paragraph from an interim committee scientific panel to the Secretary of War Henry Stimson, delivered on August 17, 1945. It says, and this, so this is, uh, the bombs were dropped on the 6th and the 9th, so this is uh, about a week or two later. We are convinced that weapons, quantitatively and qualitatively, far more effective than now available, will result from further work on these problems. 
the development in the years to come of more effective atomic weapons would appear to be a most natural element in any national policy of maintaining our military forces at great strength. Nevertheless, we have grave doubts that this further development of the hydrogen bomb, what it came to be called, can contribute essentially or permanently to the prevention of war. We believe that the safety of this nation, as opposed to its ability to inflict damage on an enemy power, can lie wholly or even primarily in its scientific or technical prowess. It can be based only on making future wars impossible. It is our unanimous and urgent recommendation to you that, despite the present incomplete exploitation of technical possibilities in this field, all steps be taken, all necessary international arrangements be made to this one end, which is to make future wars impossible. Uh, even here, it's uh, idealism speaking, um, even in the moment, uh, even if this sounds like Monday morning quarterbacking, uh, there had to have been people realizing that this just would not be so. Here is physicist Arthur Compton a month after the atomic bombs were dropped. He says, we feel that the development of the hydrogen bomb should not be undertaken, primarily because we should prefer defeat in a war to victory obtained at the expense of the enormous human disaster that would be caused by, it, by its determined use. And here is physicist Edward Teller in late 1945 on the powerlessness of scientists in the face of more and more powerful weapons. He says, if the development is possible, it is out of our powers to prevent it. And that's really it, uh, too. Again, this is not to uh, say that Edward Teller is my guy or uh, Curtis LeMay is someone that I admire, but I admire honesty and clarity, and that seems to be both honest and clear. It's also very easy, I realize, to, uh, to criticize these people uh, um, from where I am now, having where I will never have to make a decision like this. But it's almost like... Uh, uh, interviewing a poet after they've written uh, a great poem, ta talking to someone uh, who's just won the World Series. How do you feel? So much of this stuff, there are no words for it. There are no explanations for it. It's even, uh, if you want to talk about uh, criminality, asking uh, uh, someone why they went on a killing spree. At some point, there is no talking. There is no explanation for it. There is the rush and the energy and the creativity of certain things, of sports or, or of art. And I'm sure, uh, uh, I'm sure that the killer would say the same thing about the, the acts that he is committing. And um, so part of this is just that there is no language to explain this. Um, and here we are. So physicist Robert Serber on Robert Oppenheimer in late 1945, he says, Oppie says that the atomic bomb is so terrible a weapon that war is now impossible. They will keep coming back to that point. And here's Robert Oppenheimer, Robert Oppenheimer himself in late 1945. It is quite clear that the control of atomic weapons cannot be in itself the unique end of such an operation. The only unique end can be a world that is united in a world in which war will not occur. 
and here's Oppenheimer in 1946. It did not take atomic weapons to make war terrible. It did not take atomic weapons to make man want peace, a peace that would last. But the atomic bomb was the turn of the screw. It has made the prospect of future war unendurable. It has, it has led us up those last few steps to the mountain pass, and beyond there is a different country. And of course, uh, uh, Oppenheimer um, is the guy who loves John Donne and the Bhagavad Gita and uh, is a very cultured, poetic person. And so he speaks extremely well about these things. Um, but all we have to do uh, with our hindsight, with our uh, knowledge of history, is to think of the Cold War, is to think of uh, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 coming up in a month, um, to see that uh, war has not ended, uh, it has only found a new face, and uh, the only thing that cannot be done is the dropping of atomic bombs or of hydrogen bombs. Uh, President Truman in 1946, who referred to Oppenheimer as a crybaby, he says, uh, a crybaby scientist who came to my office and spent most of his time wringing his hands and telling me they had blood on them because of the discovery of atomic energy. I mean, can you imagine the pressure inside of his head? Uh, physicist Edward Teller in 1946, nothing that we can plan as a defense for the next generation is likely to be satisfactory. That is, nothing but world union. Or instead of world union, uh, arms race and uh, paranoia, Cold War. President Truman in 1948, I don't think we ought to use this thing unless we absolutely have to. It is a terrible thing to order the use of something like that. Here, he looked at his desk rather reflectively. Something that is so terribly destructive, destructive beyond anything we've ever had. You have got to understand that this is not a military weapon. It is used to wipe out women and children and women and children and unarmed people and not for military uses. So we have got to treat this differently from rifles and cannon and ordinary things like that. You have got to understand that I have got to think about the effect of such things on international relations. This is no time to be juggling an atom bomb around. And here's Edward Teller, 1948. World government is our only hope for survival. I believe that we should cease to be infatuated with the menace of this fabulous monster, Russia. Our present necessary task of opposing Russia should not cause us to forget that in the long run we cannot win by working against something. We must work for something. We must work for world government. And here is Truman in 1949. This isn't just another weapon, not just another bomb. People can make the mistake when they talk about it that way. Dave, we will never use it again if we can possibly help it. And again in 1949, Truman, I am of the opinion we'll never obtain international control of atomic energy. Since we can't obtain international control, we must be strongest in atomic weapons. And that really is the, that really is it, isn't it, right there, the, the image of uh, uh, what did uh, Jefferson say about slavery? It was like holding, uh, 
holding a wolf uh, by its mouth and uh, you, you can't hold on but you also can't let go um, you can't get control of these weapons and since you can't do that you have to make more of them you have to have more of them than anybody um, this is uh, humanity in a nutshell at its worst uh, but at its worst and most predictable and almost its most inevitable. Here is chemist Glenn Seaborg in 1949 on the development of the hydrogen bomb. He says, although I deplore the prospect of our country putting tremendous effort into this, I must confess that I have been unable to come to the conclusion that we should not. And here are remarks from a 1952 panel on nuclear disarmament which included Robert Oppenheimer, Vannevar Bush, Alan Dulles, McGeorge Bundy, and others. It says, Fundamentally, and in the long run, the problem which is posed by the release of atomic energy is a problem of the ability of the human race to govern itself without war. There is no permanent method of excising atomic energy from our affairs now that men know how it can be released. Even if some reasonably complete international control of atomic energy should be established, knowledge would persist. And it is hard to see how there could be any major war in which one side, excuse me, in which one side or another would not eventually make and use atomic bombs. In this respect, the problem of armaments was permanently and drastically altered in 1945. And here is Truman leave it before leaving office in 1953. War today between the Soviet Empire and the free nations might dig the grave not only of our Stalinist opponents, but of our own society, our world as well as theirs. The war of the future would be one in which man could extinguish millions of lives at one blow, demolish the great cities of the world, wipe out the cultural achievements of the past, and destroy the very structure of a civilization that has been slowly and painfully built up through hundreds of generations. Such a war is not a possible policy for rational men. But again, that assumes that policy and governments and history is rational. This is Hartley Rowe an engineer and member of the General Advisory Committee on the Hydrogen Bomb, speaking in 1954. It was a pretty soul-searching time, and I had rather definite views. I may be an idealist, but I can't see how any people can go from one engine of destruction to another, each of them a thousand times greater in potential destruction, and still retain any normal perspective in regard to their relationships with other countries, and also in relationship with peace. If a commensurate effort had been made to come to some understanding with the nations of the world, we might have avoided this development. That's another key as well. That the, that the knowledge we gather uh, from violence skews any normal perspective in regard to our relationship to other countries. Um, and that says nothing about uh, a country's views on uh, culture, race, religion, um, everything else you can possibly throw into the bag. Here is physicist Enrico Fermi, 
and I.I. Rabi in the 1954 GAC report, necessarily such weapons go far beyond any military objective and enters the range of very great natural catastrophes. By its very nature, it cannot be confined to a military objective, but becomes a weapon which in practical effect is almost one of genocide. It is clear that the use of such a weapon cannot be justified on any ethical ground, which gives a human being a certain individuality and dignity, even if he appears to be a resident of any enemy country. It is evident to, evident to us that this would be the best view of peoples in other countries. Its use would put the United States in a bad moral position relative to the peoples of the world. Any post-war situation resulting from such a weapon would leave unresolvable enmities for generations. A desirable peace cannot come from such an inhuman application of force. The post-war problems would dwarf the problems which confront us at present. The fact that no limits exist to the destructiveness of this weapon makes its very existence and the knowledge of its construction a danger to humanity as a whole. It is necessarily an evil thing considered in any light. For these reasons, we believe it important for the President of the United States to tell the American people and the world that we think it is wrong on fundamental ethical principles to initiate the development of such a weapon. Now, that makes me go back to the very last quote. Uh, what, what other things other than weapons can keep countries, uh, societies, uh, cultures, uh, religions, races, creeds, philosophies? Uh, what things other than weapons can keep them from having a normal perspective in regard to their relationships with other countries and also in a relationship with other peoples and with peace. And it seems to me that uh, if you put uh, slavery, if you put uh, the tenets of uh, racism or uh, religious hatred, um, if you basically put on the table anything that human beings have ever thought of that allow them to think of their neighbors as less than human than they are, and eventually allows them to say, well, those neighbors are less than human and we can kill them. Um, that is the thing uh, beyond a weapon which makes its very existence and the knowledge of its construction a danger to humanity as a whole. It is necessarily an evil thing considered in any light. For these reasons, we believe it is important for the president, so on and so forth. Uh, we think it is wrong on fundamental ethical principles to do what? To initiate the development of a weapon, to continue to think in ways that allow us to think uh, and believe things about people who are different than us. Um, that seems to be at root as well. So that the, the problem of the bomb, even though it, uh, as it says, it, can, it is so huge that by its practical effect it is basically a weapon of genocide, the thoughts and the power behind it um, are lurking everywhere. Uh, 
I only have to think about the, the election that just passed in the United States where uh, half the country despises the other half of the country. Half the country believes one thing about uh, any number of things and the other half believes something else and at some point there is simple virile hatred for them. Um, this is what I mean, that this whole thing seems it is about the bomb, but the bomb is beside the point. It is something deeply ingrained in humanity. Um, what does uh, Cormac McCarthy say in, uh, let me see if I can actually find it here. What does Cormac McCarthy say in Blood Meridian? Let me see if I can find it here. Uh, I may not be able to find it. Of course, I can't find it now. Um, oh, he does, yes. This, this again is from my essay, <coughs> Blindness, War, and History. Uh, it makes no difference what men think of war, war endures. As well ask a man what they think of a stone. War was always here. Before man was, war waited for him. The ultimate trade awaiting its ultimate practitioner. That is the way it was and the way it will be. Uh, that way and not some other way. Uh, this is where human beings have always been. No matter, no matter what our civilizing forces have tried to pretend otherwise. Here is Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, 1954, responding to criticism from South Korea at his deciding not to use the atomic bomb on North Korea. This is what Eisenhower says. There is no disposition in America at any time to belittle the Republic of Korea. But when you say that we should deliberately plunge into war, let me tell you that if war comes, it will be horrible. Atomic war will destroy civilization. It will destroy our cities. There will be millions of people dead. War today is unthinkable with the weapons which we have at our command. If the Kremlin and Washington ever lock up in a war, the results are too horrible to contemplate. I can't even imagine them. But we must keep strong. I assure you that we, that we think about these things continuously and as seriously as you do. The kind of war that I am talking about, if carried out, would not save a democracy. Civilization would be ruined, and those nations and persons that survived would have to have strong dictators over them, just to feed the people who are left. That is why we are opposed to war. And here, the last quote for tonight, are two from the physicist Niels Bohr writing in the late 1950s, he says, We are in a completely new situation that cannot be resolved by war. Only international cooperation, exchange of scientific discoveries, internationalization of the achievements of science can lead us to the elimination of wars and thus the elimination of the very necessity to use the atomic bomb. This is the only rightful method of defense. And in many ways, all of these quotations are um, some version of uh, uh, people uh, almost interpreting religious texts thousands of years after they were written, um, after they have had 
a theology already drummed into their heads about them. Um, you have to justify it after the fact, and they're doing the best they can, but it is simply not possible. Um, I almost think here of uh, King Lear out on the heath uh, in the thunderstorm uh, with, with the fool drumming on with his riddles. Uh, there is a, uh, a great violence at the heart of everything that we do, and I don't think that there is any help in trying to deny that, and unless we come up with some better solutions, I don't think that there is even a point in trying to remedy it. Uh, it almost seems important to simply recognize it. Uh, so for the next episode on this, we'll focus again on the scientists and why other reasons they gave for why they decided to keep going with the problem of, of getting the atomic bomb made. So until then. There's a story of Robert Oppenheimer being so uh, caught up in, in how intelligent he was, how much he knew and was able to absorb, but also how hidden away he was uh, in college and later before his work on the atomic bomb. And I think the story goes that he didn't even know or wasn't really truly aware of the stock market crash or even the Great Depression until he read about it in the papers a few years later. And I think we can probably imagine uh, a similar uh, a similar bent uh, hovering around the scientists who worked on the atomic bomb. Certainly not all of them, but enough of them. And along with that kind of youthful unawareness of the rest of the world, there is also uh, the example of Oppenheimer's own awakening. I think he says early in one of the quotes I'm going to read uh, in a few moments that uh, in the 30s he became aware of uh, all the threats that were hovering, or worse, over the lives of European Jews and, uh, and his family. I believe he still had family in Europe. And many of the atomic scientists who uh, helped uh, with the Manhattan Project also had families in Europe. And so the, uh, the question on the one hand is the idealism of knowledge, the idealism of uh, almost a genius of mind to be able to comprehend uh, physics and to uh, make something new out of it. On the other hand, there is then the awakening to the wider world the, uh, the patriotic duty that many of them saw in going into bomb work, the realization from many of them that uh, while at first they had gone into the bomb work uh, enthusiastically because they believed that the target for the bomb would have been Germany, these being mostly 
uh, European exiles or uh, scientists with families still in Europe, so they believed that they were working to free their own families, and so there ended up being a great shock when they realized that no, this bomb that they created was going to be dropped on a uh, another people entirely, someone who uh, a country that had nothing to do uh, with the sufferings of their family or their friends. And it's a very difficult situation because it's also a creative situation. Um, in thinking about what I could possibly say here as an introduction, I thought of the uh, story from the book of Genesis, the Akedah, as Jews refer to it, which is simply the word for binding, the binding of Isaac in Genesis 22, the near sacrifice of Isaac. And I remember hearing a, uh, a rabbi talking about what that story meant to him. And for him, the, the idea of Abraham um, very nearly sacrificing his own son because God told him to do it, it struck him, uh, being uh, this rabbi, it struck him, being a parent, as being something akin to what all parents do uh, to their children uh, while trying to advance themselves professionally. Uh, in the rabbi's case, it's probably uh, tending to his congregation more than his family and his children sometimes, being more devoted to the study of Torah and Talmud and uh, the hugeness of uh, Jewish tradition. We could think of um, any clergy that is allowed to get married and have families having the same issue. Um, so when you come back to Abraham, the, the image is of someone who is so caught up uh, in this God that he has found, um, and he is so caught up in this new sense of piety and revelation of what he has found, that he is willing to do literally anything, literally the worst thing, in order to uh, keep that relationship with this God going. Now, of course, that's the, the probably the most negative view of the Abraham story. There are much uh, sunnier versions of, uh, of what that story can possibly be about. But on a night when we're talking uh, about the atomic bomb, I don't think that's an inappropriate one to mention. And to be honest, uh, it is where I stand myself. I mean, to be honest, what am I really doing? the best thing that I can possibly be doing in the world right now, uh, not being in the company of my wife, not being in the company of my daughter right now, but instead uh, adding on to uh, my obsession with the subject by recording this in our basement. Um, it's a very uh, tricky and complex and uh, difficult idea. And we will see it here in these quotations, how the scientists, and it's odd, it, it seems, uh, it doesn't seem convincing, at least to me, the first time I heard it, it didn't seem convincing to me that these scientists could become so wrapped up in the work, in solving the problem of making this bomb work, 
that they didn't really think about its use. Many of them didn't think about it for a long time until its use became uh, a definite possibility. Uh, it's hard for us to imagine that. Uh, you're making a bomb. You're certainly using physics and advanced mathematics and everything to try and figure it out, but at the end of the day, it is a weapon of immense destructive capability. Uh, and it's hard for us, for those, I guess, who are outside of a process like that, to imagine that these scientists would have forgotten that. But then in my own life, all I really have to do, uh, I look back at uh, the 10 years that I spent writing uh, a 400-page poem, and all the late nights where uh, my wife went to bed first, or where I spent my um, my lunch hour at work, not talking with my coworkers, but working on that poem. I I didn't have a clear head of priorities, really, uh, because I was obsessed with this project. And I'm not equating uh, a long poem to the atomic bomb by any re by any in any way, but it is a way in for me to uh, understand what what might have been going on here. And so here we are with uh, more talk from the scientists, mostly the scientists, but there will also be the politicians. The first actually comes from Thomas Jefferson, who said, I know of no safe depository of the ultimate powers of the society, but the people themselves. And if we think them not, not enlightened enough to exercise that control with a whole and wholesome discretion, the remedy is not to take it from them, but to inform them, inform them of their discretion. And fast forward to President Roosevelt speaking at a Pan-American Scientific Congress in Washington in 1940, where he said, You who are scientists may have been told that you are in part responsible for the debacle of today. But I assure you that it is not the scientists of the world who are responsible. What has come about has been caused solely by those who would use and are using the progress that you have made along lines of peace in an entirely different cause. And here is Robert Oppenheimer on his political awakening, which took place around 1936 or so. And he said, I had had a continuing smoldering fury about the treatment of Jews in Germany. I had relatives there and was later to help in extricating them and bringing them to this country. And here is physicist Robert Wilson speaking about Robert Oppenheimer. Oppie would get a faraway look in his eyes and tell me that this war was different from any war ever fought before. It was a war about the principles of freedom. He was convinced that the war effort was a mass effort to overthrow the Nazis and upset fascism. And he talked of a people's army and a people's war. The language had changed so little. It's the same kind of political language, except now it has a patriotic flavor, whereas before it just had a radical flavor. And of course, anyone looking into uh, Oppenheimer's biography saw his uh, dabblings with the uh, Communist Party in America. And that is 
I'm pretty sure what Robert Wilson is referring to. Here is physicist Otto Frisch recalling the moment in 1940, quote, when he understood a bomb might be possible after all, end quote. And he says, I have often been asked why I didn't abandon the project there and then, saying nothing to anybody. Why start on a project which, if it was successful, would end with the production of a weapon of unparalleled violence, a weapon of mass destruction such as the world had never seen? The answer was very simple. We were at war, and the idea was reasonably obvious. Very probably, some German scientists had had the same idea and were working on it. And that really is the simplest explanation for why it was developed and why it was ultimately used. Um, I don't know of any pacifist argument uh, at all that has, an, had, had, that has a good answer for what if Japan had uh, begun uh, firebombing American cities? What if Germany had begun firebombing American cities? What if Japan had dropped an atomic bomb on American cities? What if Germany had dropped atomic bomb on American cities? Would even uh, the most ardent pacifist have complained at some point after those events that the American government, the, the American military, and the American scientists hadn't uh, created these weapons and used them first to protect the country? Uh, a realistic and cynical view of life seems to be all that uh, we can possibly have in a situation like World War II. Uh, here is mathematician Stanislav Ulam on arriving with his brother in America. He says, Our father and sister were in Poland. So were many other relatives. At the moment, I suddenly felt as if a curtain had fallen on my past life cutting it off from my future. There has been a different color and meaning to everything ever since. And here is, here is uh, Robert Oppenheimer to physicist I.I. Robbie. He says, I do not think that the Nazis allow us the option of not carrying out that development. And here is Edward Teller. He says, I came to the United States in 1935 and the handwriting was on the wall. At that time, I believed that Hitler would conquer the world unless a miracle happened. To deflect my attention from physics, my full-time job, which I liked, to work on weapons was not an easy matter. And for quite a time, I did not make up my mind. And the tail end of another quote from him, if the scientists in the free countries will not make weapons, to defend the freedom of their countries, then freedom will be lost. And physicist Emilio Segre, upon hearing of Hitler's death, death, he says, we have been too late, because of course by the time of Hitler's death they had not tested the bomb yet, the famous Trinity test, and he says we have been too late to drop our weapon on Germany. Here is physicist Freeman Dyson on Joseph Rotblat. Um, Rotblat saw no point in continuing work on a weapon that was no longer needed to defeat Germany. This is someone 
who only saw a point in using the atomic bomb on Germany. And I mentioned uh, the physicist Robert Wilson in the last episode here. And I'll mention again, uh, take a look at the uh, documentary uh, linked in the post description called The Day After Trinity. Robert Wilson has a, uh, a wonderful part to play uh, all the times they switch to him and what he says, you can still tell uh, how difficult all of this was for him. And this is a handful of quotations from him. He said once, We did have a pretty intense discussion of why it was that we were continuing to make a bomb after the war had virtually been won. And at another point he said, I thought we were fighting the Nazis, not the Japanese particularly. And at another point, I would like to think now that at the time of the German defeat I would have stopped, taken stock, thought it all over, and that I would have walked away from Los Alamos at that time. In terms of everything that I believed in before, during, and after the war, I cannot understand why I did not make that act. On the other hand, it simply was not in the air, and I don't know of a single instance of anyone who made that suggestion or who did leave. There might have been someone I didn't know, but at the time it just was not something that was part of our lives. Our life was directed to do one thing, as though we had been programmed to do that, and we, as automatons, were doing it. And at another point he said, I felt betrayed when the bomb was exploded over Japan, without discussion or some peaceful demonstration of its power to the Japanese. And then you come to the awful moment for these physicists when uh, everything that they worked for, the object of all of their effort, uh, all of their striving, is uh, it is only at the point at which it works, after, it is only at the point at which they have finally made it work that it is taken out of their hands and they have no uh, authority to uh, discuss how or when it is used at all. Here is uh, Robert Oppenheimer. When you see something that is technically sweet, you go ahead and do it, and you argue about what to do about it only after you have had your technical success. That is the way it was with the atomic bomb. I do not think anybody opposed making it. There were some debates about what to do with it after it was made. And here is physicist Hans Bethe in, on the atmosphere at Los Alamos. He said, But I have never observed in any one of these other groups quite the spirit of belonging together, quite the urge to reminisce about the days of the laboratory, quite the feeling that this was really the great time of their lives. That this was true of Los Alamos was mainly due to Oppenheimer. He was a leader and physicist Freeman Dyson on Robert Oppenheimer. Restlessness drove him to his supreme achievement, the fulfillment of the mission of Los Alamos without pause for rest or reflection. And here's physicist Victor Weisskopf. The thought of quitting did not even cross my mind. And here is Joseph Grew, U.S. Ambassador to Japan, 
victory or death is no mere slogan for these soldiers. It is plain, matter-of-fact description of the military policy that controls their forces, from the highest generals to the newest recruits. The man who allows himself to be captured has disgraced himself and his country. And here is Marine General Alexander A. Vandergrieft fighting at the time in the Solomons and at Guadalcanal. He says, I have never heard or read of this kind of fighting, the kind of fighting the Japanese were engaged in. These people refuse to surrender. The wounded will wait until we come up to examine them and blow themselves and the other fellow to death with a hand grenade. And here is journalist John Hersey. Quite frequently you hear the Marines say, I wish we were fighting against Germans. They are human beings like us. Fighting against them must be like an athletic performance, matching your skills against someone you know is good. Germans are misled, but at least they react like men. But the Japs are like animals. Against them you have to learn a whole new set of physical reactions. You have to get used to their animal stubbornness and tenacity. They take to the jungle as if they had been bred there, and like some beasts, you never see them until they are dead. And here is journalist Henry C. Wolfe in Harper's, who called for the fi- who called for the fire bombings of Japan's inflammable matchbox cities. He said, "It seems brutal to be talking about burning homes." but we are engaged in a life-and-death struggle for national survival, and we are therefore justified in taking any action that will save the lives of American soldiers and sailors. We must strike hard with everything we have at the spot where it will do the most damage to the enemy. And here is physicist I.I. Robbie again, uh, seeing Robert Oppenheimer after the Trinity test that took place at, in the desert of uh, Granado del Muerto in New Mexico in July of 1945. This is after Oppenheimer, uh, after the first test, and Oppenheimer has uh, seen that it works. Uh, Robbie says, Oppenheimer was in the forward bunker. When he came back, there he was, you know, with his hat, his famous pork pie hat. You've seen the pictures of Robert's hat. And he came to where we were in the headquarters, so to speak, and his walk was like high noon. I think that's the best I could describe it, this kind of strut. He had done it. He had done it. And here is Robert Oppenheimer remembering the Trinity test years later. And this is a, uh, I believe this is what John Else used as the closing for uh, the day after Trinity. Uh, Oppenheimer appeared on television, and this is what he said. We waited until the blast had passed, walked out of the shelter, and then it was extremely solemn. We knew the world would not be the same. A few people laughed. A few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty, and to impress him he takes on his multi-armed form and says, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. And Oppenheimer says, I suppose we all thought that, one way or another. And that's the thing. Um, 
it isn't just that right after it happened, Oppenheimer is walking around cocky like high noon, and years later uh, he's moaning about it. I think the real complexity here is that both were probably happening at the same time. High Noon and the Bhagavad Gita and John Donne and all of it, uh, all wrapped into one and no way like a, uh, uh, like a blanket that you've made. You can't, uh, you can't take any one thread out uh, and isolate it. It's all woven together. Here is physicist Robert Wilson recalling Oppenheimer's words the day after the Trinity test. Those poor little people, those poor little people, referring to the Japanese. Since, of course, this is after Germany has surrendered, so he knows that if it is going to be used, it is going to be used against the Japanese. Uh, here is physicist Robert Wilson's words after the Trinity test to fellow scientist Richard Feynman. He simply says, it is a terrible thing we made. Here are two quotations from Henry Stimson, the American Secretary of War. He says, I believe Japan is susceptible to reason in such a crisis to a much greater extent than is indicated by our current press and other current comment, such as those of the soldiers and the journalists that I just quoted earlier. Japan is not a nation composed wholly of mad fanatics of an entirely different mentality from ours. On the contrary, she has within the past century shown herself to possess extremely intelligent people capable in an unprecedentedly short time of adopting not only the complicated technique of Occidental civilization, but to a substantial extent their culture and their political and social ide ideals. Her advance in all these respects during the short period of 60 or 70 years has been one of the most astounding feats of national progress in history. It is therefore my conclusion that a carefully timed warning should be given to Japan. And here's another quotation. Here is the second one from Henry Stimson. My chief purpose was to end the war in victory with the least possible cost in the lives of the men in the armies which I had helped to raise. In the light of the alternatives, which on a fair estimate, were open to us, I believe that no man, in our position, and subject to our responsibilities, holding in his hands a weapon of such possibilities for accomplishing this purpose and saving those lives, could have failed to use it, and afterwards looked his countrymen in the face." And uh, there are two things again. It isn't that he thought one of those things on a Monday and thought the second a year later. It is that he would have thought both of those things at the same time, and that there would not have been, uh, there would have been no way out. That seems to be the definition of tragedy, at least for me. Um, the impossible situation, the impossible decision. Um, here is Robert Oppenheimer's boss, General Leslie Groves, head of the Manhattan Project. He said, I had set as the governing factor that the targets chosen should be places the bombing of which would be most adversely affect the will of the Japanese people to continue the war. Beyond that, they should be military in nature, consisting either of important headquarters or troop concentration, or centers of production of military equipment and supplies. Uh, 
To enable us to assess accurately the effects of the bomb, the targets should not have been previously damaged by air raids. It was also desirable that the fire that the fire target of such size that the damage would be confined within it so that we could more definitely determine the power of the bomb. And here is a scientist at Los Alamos in May 1945 who, well, beginning to sense the moral implications of their work, quote, was still caught up in the momentum of the project and the excitement of their technology. Here is, here is an Air Force document recommending Kyoto and Hiroshima as the atomic bomb targets. One, Kyoto. The target is an urban industrial area with a population of one million. It is the former capital of Japan, and many people and industries are now being moved there as other areas are being destroyed. From the psychological point of view, there is the advantage that Kyoto is an intellectual center for Japan, and the people there are more apt to appreciate the significance of such a weapon as the gadget. That's the, that's the thing. They constantly refer to the bomb as the gadget. Number two, Hiroshima. This is an important army depot and a port of embarkation in the middle of the urban industrial area. It is a good radar target and it is such a size that a large part of the city would be extensively damaged. There are adjacent hills which are likely to produce a focusing effect which would considerably increase the blast damage. Due to rivers, it is not a good incendiary target. Now, after Germany was ruled out as a target, and after a handful of staged demonstrations of what an atomic bomb was capable of was also ruled out, a scientific panel of the Interim Committee, which included Ernest Lawrence and Rico Fermi, Robert Oppenheimer, and Arthur Compton, said this, Those who advocate a purely technical demonstration would wish to outlaw the use of atomic weapons and have feared that if we use the weapons now, our position in the future negotiations will be prejudiced. Others emphasize the opportunity of saving American lives by immediate military use, and believe that such use will improve the international prospects, in that they are more concerned with the prevention of war than with the elimination of this specific weapon. We find ourselves closer in these latter views. We can propose no technical demonstration likely to bring an end to the war. We see no acceptable alternative to direct military use." <coughs> and of course, uh, I mean, that seems to be right. Uh, the first bomb was dropped and it uh, elicited no reaction of surrender at all. So how can we imagine that simply dropping it away from people would have uh, made much of a difference either? Here is General Dwight Eisenhower remembering talking with Henry Stimson in July 1945. The cable was in code. You know the way they do it. The lamb is born or some damn thing like that. So then he told me that they were going to drop it on the Japanese. Well, I listened and I didn't volunteer anything because after all, my war was over in Europe and it wasn't up to me. But I was getting more and more depressed just thinking about it. 
Then he asked me for my opinion, so I told him I was against it on two counts. First, the Japanese were readying to surrender, and it wasn't necessary to hit them with that awful thing. And second, I hated to see our country be the first to use such weapons. Well, the old gentleman got furious, and I can see how he would. After all, it had been his responsibility to push for all the huge expenditure to develop the bomb, which of course he had a right to do, and was right to do. Still, it was an awful problem, and that's it. Uh, it is an awful problem. Um, everyone wants to talk about American exceptionalism, and sometimes uh, the exceptionalism uh, swings both ways. Um, uh, the extremes swing both ways, don't they? Uh, Robert Oppenheimer speaking to his brother, also a physicist, upon hearing uh, about the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima, Oppenheimer simply said, it worked. And then another remark that Frank Oppenheimer recalled his brother saying, at first he said, thank God it wasn't a dud. But, only, but a moment later, he suddenly got this look of horror of all the people that had been killed. Here is physicist Otto Frisch again. Somebody opened my door and shouted, Hiroshima has been destroyed. About a hundred thousand people were thought to have been killed. I still remember the feeling of unease, indeed nausea, when I saw how many of my friends were rushing to the telephone to book tables at the La Fonda Hotel in Santa Fe in order to celebrate. Of course, they were exalted by the success of their work but it seemed rather ghoulish to celebrate the sudden death of a hundred thousand people, even if they were, quote, enemies. Here is Robert Oppenheimer, the evening after Hiroshima was bombed, speaking to a, quote, cheering, foot-stamping audience gathered in the Los Alamos auditorium. He said, It was too early to determine what the results of the bombing might have been, but he was sure that the Japanese did not like it. And here is Robert Oppenheimer writing to his former teacher after Hiroshima. You will believe that this undertaking has not been without its misgivings. They are heavy on us today, when the future, which has so many elements of high promise, is yet only a stone's throw from despair. And again, that's both things at once. Uh, you can imagine a guy uh, getting the crowd going by saying, the Japanese didn't like it. Uh, which which sounds slightly sickening. And then, uh, but at the same time, he says, we are all only a stone's throw from despair. Both of these things, many things, are happening all at once. Here is Robert Oppenheimer writing to his old friend, Hokan Chevalier, after Hiroshima. He says, circumstances are heavy with misgiving and far, far more difficult than they should be had we power to remake the world uh, to be as we think it should be. Here is Robert Oppenheimer after Hiroshima uh, saying to a military reporter that he was, quote, a little scared of what I had made. But he immediately added, a scientist cannot hold back progress because of fears of what the world will do with his discoveries. And here's the author Peter Goodchild and the scientists of Los Alamos following the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 
For years, most of the men at Los Alamos, and there, there were women, uh, had been caught up in the excitement of the technical challenge and had given so little thought to the consequences of their actions. Their celebration marked the profound relief that a monumental task had been achieved, but at the same time there was a realization of the awfulness of what they had done. That night, as Oppenheimer walked away from the celebrations, he came across one of the younger scientists, stone-cold sober and retching into the bushes. Here is Alice Kimball Smith, wife of one of the Los Alamos scientists. As the days passed, the revulsion grew, bringing with it, even for those who believe that the end of the war justified the bombing, an intensely personal experience of the reality of evil. And again, I don't, I don't deny that in any way. Uh, it is, uh, all war is immoral, and, and all war is immoral. Uh, Robert Oppenheimer, on the scientists at Los Alamos in October 1945. In October 1945, after it's been made, after it's been dropped, all they think about now are the social and economic implications of the bomb. They did not consider those things before then. Here is Robert Oppenheimer speaking to Los Alamos scientists on October 16, 1945. Today, that pride must be tempered with a profound concern. If atomic bombs are to be added as new weapons to the arsenals of a warring world, or to the arsenals of nations preparing for war, then the time will come when mankind will curse the names of Los Alamos and Hiroshima. The peoples of the world must unite or they will perish. This war that has ravaged so much of the earth has written these words. The atomic bomb has spelled them out for all men to understand. Other men have spoken them in other times of other wars of other weapons. They have not prevailed. They are, some, misled by a false sense of human history, who hold that they will not prevail today. It is not for us to believe that. By our works we are committed, committed to a world united, before the common peril, in law, and in humanity. And here is Robert Oppenheimer a month later, speaking before the Association of Los Alamos Scientists. After admitting that one reason why scientists had built the bomb was, be, was out of a, quote, sense of adventure, end quote, he went on to say, when you come right down to it, the reason that we did this job is because it was an organic necessity. If you are a scientist, you cannot stop such a thing. If you are a scientist, you believe that it is good to find out how the world works, that it is good to find out what the realities are, that it is good to turn over mankind at large, the greatest possible power to control the world and to deal with it according to its lights and values. It is not possible to be a scientist unless you believe that the knowledge of the world and the power which it gives is a thing which is of intrinsic value to humanity, and that you are using it to help in the spread of knowledge and are willing to take the consequences. We must be willing to take the consequences. Just to go back to 
Alice Kimball Smith, an intensely personal experience of the reality of evil. Um, it's a strange thing about Americans. Uh, on the one hand, uh, there are people, like many of the poets in that anthology that I mentioned in the first episode about the bomb, who would write poems with titles like To Robert Oppenheimer in Hell. Um, I think that's too simplistic. Um, on the other hand, uh, and they would say this was evil and it should not have been done, uh, there are those who cannot fathom their country, their America, doing anything that could be called evil. And so they say it wasn't evil and it should have been done. Uh, I think the whole point of, of why I'm presenting these now is to show the difficult middle way. It was evil and it had to be done. Um, it was evil and there was no avoiding it. Uh, we have to um, be willing to see uh, the hand that we have all had in evil. Um, that seems to be uh, one of the great uses for art and religion is to help uh, understand that point of view and not to see the extreme uh, denial either on one side or the other. Although I'm sure I will lose listeners for saying that, that they probably haven't listened this far anyway. Uh, here is David Lilienthal, the first chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, writing in his diary of the, quote, keen enthusiasm of the Los Alamos scientists. And he said, I don't object at all to the expressions of satisfactions, satisfaction that the job is being pushed and done well, but that there should not be even a single token expression of profound concern and regret that we are engaged in developing weapons directed against the indiscriminate destruction of defenseless women and children, this bothered me. We keep saying we have no other course. What we should say is we are not bright enough to see any other course. Uh, and I would just add to that, uh, I don't know everything, I haven't read everything, um, but everything I know about history, about how human beings have acted and no doubt will continue to act, um, it's not that we're not bright enough to see any other course. It's that at some point uh, we have painted ourselves into a corner again. And the other course, as I've mentioned here from the words of others, is what if they get it first? What if they use it on us first? We are, we are, we are all of us because of how we treat other people because of how we treat uh, those who are different from us in any way. Uh, humanity and bureaucracy, governments, intelligence, military, uh, the smartest people in the entire world, uh, the wonderful idea that, uh, the, that Europe slept walk, uh, uh, 
a book called Sleepwalkers, Sleepwalking into World War I, that you have these people in uh, early 1900s Europe who, who grew up and were groomed for these positions uh, in the aristocracy and uh, in the channels of governments going back and forth from country to country. They were groomed for a situation like what led up to World War I, and they were educated to be able to avoid it, and yet they couldn't. Um, there is something about humanity, no matter the large buildings and the fancy suits and the speeches and, uh, and just the great cities, just being impressed by them, by culture, by the by the the sweep of a, of a country's history or of a or of an office or of a title, whatever it is, uh, there is something about it that is at the end, uh, basically, fifth graders uh, on a on a playground, nothing better than children. Um, the only difference being these are adults and. Um, and actual blood is shed. I don't know of another way out of that. Tomorrow, for those of you who are left, um, I will see. I will read the voices from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And after that, uh, just some summing up. So, until then. So now we come to the voices from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. When I first uh, compiled all of these quotations and posted them on my blog a few years ago, uh, I said this. When the New Yorker dedicated its entire August 31st, 1946 issue to John Hersey's Hiroshima, the editors wrote that they did so, quote, in the conviction that few of us have yet comprehended the all but incredible destructive power of this weapon, and that everyone might well take time to consider the terrible implications of its use." End quote. And I continued, in light of our peculiar, peculiarly modern strain of divisive political culture, where we are forced to either condemn or acclaim the bombings without reservation, our mere opinions in 2016 or in 2021 are granted a status immensely more important than the bombings themselves. We have to be on a team nowadays. We can't consider an event on its own. And so, uh, even more so, uh, we devote less and less time to considering just what happened to the people on the ground. And so here is only, only an introduction to what happened. Here are the voices. Uh, of those who were there and of the studies that came afterwards. A Manhattan Project study stated that because the head in the flash comes in such a short time, there is no time for any cooling to take place, and the temperature of a person's skin can be raised to 120 degrees Fahrenheit in the first millisecond 
and at a distance of 2.3 miles when the bomb is dropped and explodes. A Japanese study said the temperature at the site of the explosion reached 5,400 degrees Fahrenheit and primary atomic bomb thermal injury was found in those exposed within two miles of the hypocenter. Severe thermal burns of over grade 5 occurred within 0.6 to 1 mile of the hypocenter, and those grades of 1 to 4 occurred as far as 2 to 2.5 miles from the hypocenter. Extreme intense thermal energy leads not only to carbonization but also to evaporation of the viscera. And Richard Rhodes says, People exposed within half a mile of the Little Boy Fireball, Little Boy being the name given to the first bomb, the Little Boy Fireball, that is, were seared to bundles of smoking black char in a fraction of a second as their internal organs boiled away. Doctor, a patient commented to Michikio Hachia a few days later, a human being who has been roasted becomes quite small, doesn't he? The small black bundles now stuck to the streets and bridges and sidewalks of Hiroshima numbered in the thousands. And this is the voice of a junior college girl in Hiroshima. Screaming children who have lost sight of their mothers. Voices of mothers searching for the little ones. People who can no longer bear the heat cooling their body in cisterns. Everyone among the fleeing people died red with blood. And here's a 19-year-old woman in Hiroshima. I saw for the first time a pile of burned bodies in a water tank by the entrance to the broadcasting station. Then I was suddenly frightened by a terrible sight in the street 40 to 50 meters from the Shukin Garden. There was a charred body of a woman standing frozen in a running posture, with one leg lifted and her baby tightly clutched in her arms. Who on earth could she be? Here is a junior college woman in Hiroshima. At the base of the bridge, inside a big cistern that had been dug out there, was a mother weeping and holding above her head a naked baby that was burned bright red all over its body. And another mother was crying and sobbing as she gave her burned breast to her baby. Here is a husband and wife in Hiroshima. While taking my severely wounded wife out to the riverbank by the side of the hill of Nakahiromachi, I was horrified, indeed, at the sight of a stark naked man standing in the rain with his eyeball in his palm. He looked to be in great pain, but there was nothing I could do for him. Here's another witness in Hiroshima. There were so many burned at a first aid station that the odor was like drying squid. They looked like boiled octopuses. I saw a man whose eye had been torn out by an injury, and there he stood with his eye resting in the palm of his hand. What made my blood run cold was that it looked like the eye was staring at me. Here's a boy who was in the third grade at Hiroshima.
men whose whole bodies were covered with blood, and women whose skin hung from them like a kimono, plunged shrieking into the river. All these become corpses, and their bodies are carried by the current toward the sea. I got terribly thirsty, so I went to the river bank. From upstream, a great many black and burned corpses came floating down the river. I pushed them away and drank the water. At the margin of the river, there were corpses lying all over the place. Here's a girl who was in the fifth grade at Hiroshima. I do not know how many times I called, begging that they would cut off my burned arms and legs. Here is a six-year-old boy in Hiroshima. The night, that night, brother's body swelled up terribly badly. He looked just like a bronze Buddha. And here's a young woman in Hiroshima. We gathered the dead bodies and made big mountains of the dead and put oil on them and burned them. And people who were unconscious woke up in the piles of the dead when they found themselves burning and came running out. And this is a fourth grader in Hiroshima. At the site of the Japanese Red Cross Hospital, the smell of the bodies being cremated is overpowering. Too much sorrow makes me feel like a stranger to myself. And yet, despite my grief, I cannot cry. And uh, there was a, a doctor, a Japanese doctor wounded by the bomb, who tended to the other survivors. His name was Michikio Haihia, and he reported this dream, having this dream after the bombing. It seems that I was in Tokyo after the great earthquake, and around me were decomposing bodies heaped in piles, all of whom were looking right at me. I saw an eye sitting on the palm of a girl's hand. Suddenly it turned and leapt into the sky, and then it came flying back towards me, so that, looking up, I could see a great bare eyeball, bigger than life, hovering over my head staring point-blank at me. I was powerless to move. I awakened short of breath and with my heart pounding. And here is almost all of the remaining quotes here are from Robert Oppenheimer. Here is one quote from Oppenheimer. We took this tree with a lot of ripe fruit on it and shook it hard, and out came radar and atomic bombs. Of course, radar was invented uh, uh, during the Second World War. The whole wartime spirit was one of frantic and rather ruthless exploitation of the known. And here is Robert Oppenheimer to the American Philosophical Society. We have made a thing, a most terrible weapon, that has altered abruptly and profoundly the nature of the world, a thing that by all the standards of the world we grew up in is an evil. And by so doing, we have raised again the question of whether science is good for man. And here is another quote from Oppenheimer. The people of the world must unite or they will perish. This war that has ravaged so much of the earth has written these words. 
the atomic bomb has spelled them out for all men to understand. Other men have spoken them in other times of other wars of other weapons. They have not prevailed. There are some, misled by a false sense of human history, who hold that they will not prevail today. It is not for us to believe that. By our works we are committed, committed to a world united, before the common peril in law and in humanity. And uh, I guess that's a mistake because I read that that one yesterday, but it's bearing in mind that the option uh, is not a must. Um, I cannot put myself back to the time of World War II and its, and its finally ending and the anxieties uh, of the Cold War as it began. And then on top of that, of being Robert Oppenheimer and having the anxieties and uh, pride and regret and all of it mixed into his head as well. But at the same time, we cannot say must, the peoples of the world must unite or they will perish. Since, uh, since the fact is, since 1945, we have neither united nor perished. We have simply gone on. Uh, Robert Oppenheimer again. In some sort of crude sense, which no vulgarity, no humor, no overstatement can quite extinguish, the physicists have known sin. And this is a knowledge which they cannot lose. This is a knowledge which they cannot lose. The physicists have known sin, which I think is a remarkable thing to say. Uh, Oppenheimer's fellow physicist I.I. Rabi uh, did not think that was such a wonderful remark. He said, that sort of crap, we never talked about it that way. He felt sin. Well, he didn't know who he was. Oppenheimer was full of too many humanities and had a tendency to make things sound mystical. Uh, here is Henry Wallace. He said, The guilty consciousness of the atomic bomb scientists is one of the most astounding things I have ever seen. And here is Robert Oppenheimer upset uh, late in life over a fictional play about him. And Oppenheimer says this, What I have never done, but which the play shows, is to express regret for doing what I did and could at Los Alamos. In fact, on the varied and recurrent occasions, I have reaffirmed my sense that, with all the black and white, that was something I did not regret. He says, though, that he was mostly upset with the long and totally improvised final speech I am supposed to have made, in which indeed it affirms such regret. My own feelings about responsibility and guilt have always had to do with the present, and so far in this life that has more that has been more than enough to occupy me. And Oppenheimer again, this is the last one from him, taken as a story of human achievement and human blindness, the discoveries in the sciences are among the great epics. And here is James B. Conant. I did not see in 1917, and do not see in 1968, why tearing a man's guts out by a high-explosive shell is to be preferred to maiming him by attacking his lungs or skin. All war is a miracle. Oh, all war is 
amoral. Logically, the 100% pacifist has the only impregnable position. Once that is abandoned, as it is when a nation becomes a belligerent, one can talk sensibly only in terms of violation of agreements about the way war is conducted or of the consequences of a certain tactic or weapon. And here's the very last quotation from Niels Bohr. Only by extending this powerful weapon to other countries could we guarantee that it would not be used in the future. Now that was as far as I got a few years ago when I was discussing this with my wife and posting it on my blog. Um, and she finally said, um, I mean, you have to post something about what you believe, what your conclusions are about this. And uh, I haven't read this since then, but I will, I will read it now and see what my reactions are uh, five years later. What to make of any of these voices? This week's episodes are the sum of something I've wanted to put together quite literally for years. And talking with my wife about each of them has convinced me that I have to at least try to insert my own voice here. So consider some of the many justifications put forth for dropping the atomic bomb. These are the reasons uh, that are specifically in regards to war with Japan. Uh, it will end the war. It is necessary to end the war in this way because conventional troop warfare against Japan is proving so brutal. Such brutality is the unfortunate result of certain aspects of culture specific to Japan, which refuse surrender of any kind. As a result, a land invasion of Japan by American troops will likely result in the deaths of more Japanese civilians, not to mention American soldiers, than the dropping of the atomic bomb, even two of them. This is borne out by the fact that America's firebombing destruction of 50 to 90 percent of two dozen Japanese cities did not suffice to bring about Japanese surrender, and because dropping the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima did not prompt immediate surrender either, hence the second one on Nagasaki. And that for all of these and many other unfortunate historic, cultural, and technological coincidences, it cannot be forgotten that Japan initiated aggression with the United States, and that, whatever the sins of the United States then or since, it is unlikely that it would have ever firebombed Japan or used atomic weapons against them under any other circumstances. In short, the conclusion seems to be that war is not only hell, but an unpredictably escalating hell, in which continually hellish things happen, and that, and that Japan should have expected this when they initiated it, and that any anyone who starts a war should expect it. The United States should expect it when they do the same thing. And finally, uh, specifically in regards to Japan, Japan and Germany both had atomic bomb programs of their own, and there is no reason to believe that either would have withheld its use had they had the chance to use them on America, or uh, if Germany had used them uh, on the European continent. And if the Blitz against Britain is any example, there is no reason to believe that if the United States had been closer to either Japan or Germany, 
that either country would have kept itself from firebombing the United States. And so what are our options against such enemies? Um, I don't really have any patience for the people who uh, hate America uh, so unreservedly um, that they can't at least uh, admit to this. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say to that. that uh, anyhow, um, as to the reasons that are specifically in regards to demonstrating the bomb's use on Japan, without dropping it on civilians. That was a plan at one point, to uh, uh, get a bunch of uh, Japanese officials together, show them what the bomb looks like uh, in, a, in an unpopulated area, and hope that they uh, surrender just by seeing the power of the bomb. Uh, with the nature of the United States War with Japan as a guide, a demonstration of the atomic bomb for Japanese officials to be exploded in an unpopulated area seems unlikely to convince them. Because of the limited number of atomic bombs in August 1945, quite literally there were two of them, quote, wasting a bomb in this way was unacceptable. And the worry was if a demonstration is agreed to and the bomb is a dud, risking that outcome in front of an already stubborn enemy is also unacceptable. Uh, the reasons regarding the bombs placed in post-war politics and human life. Uh, as, I quote, as I mentioned, it will end not just this war, but will be so terrible that we'll end war altogether. I should have said that before I get to my own thoughts, uh, I'm listing the various justifications for its use. Um, no post-war peace or the organization like the United Nations can honestly be entered into without the participating countries knowing about the atomic bomb, so we have to drop it. Uh, the anxiety of knowing that nuclear weapons exist, but not knowing what their actual destructive capabilities are, is much worse than the anxiety derived from knowing full well what their destructive capabilities are, i.e. knowledge, even the worst knowledge, is always better. And in the long run of history, um, where history has no sympathies, uh, there are always people and places like Hiroshima and Nagasaki who are unfortunately offered up to provide us with that knowledge. So, whether we agree with the use of nuclear weapons or not, to me, anyway, the reasons given in the third section are beyond ridiculous and are, as was put by my wife, willfully and even poetically naive. Uh, the third section being the one I just read, that it will end all war, that the United Nations and other organizations can't be entered into without knowledge of the bomb, and that uh, the anxiety of knowing about nuclear weapons uh, is better we are better knowing what they do than not knowing what they do. Um, willfully and poetically naive. They are the result of scientists and politicians who are immensely intelligent, but obviously immensely short-sighted and even desperate. The reasons given in the second section, while based on the limited availability of bombs at the time, still arise mostly from the belief that Japan was and continued to be stubborn beyond measure and unwilling to surrender 
which leaves the real reasons for dropping the atomic bomb, that is, the real reasons worth talking about that don't just seem silly or naive, to be issues mentioned in the first second, namely, it will end the present war, war against Japan has been particularly brutal, and surrender must be forced somehow. And it did end the war. Was there another way to end the war? There is no way of knowing how much longer the war with Japan would have been continued, but both sides appear to have been ready to keep throwing their young men at each other for years to come. And since America's actions since World War II might make it easy to say that we dropped the bomb on Japan because it was a culture so obviously other than our own, so obviously alien, we must remember that many of those who worked on the bomb did so in the hopes that it would be used, if at all, against Germany in Europe. The racial component, even though it obviously existed, was not a primary factor in dropping the bomb on Japan. Rather, and quite simply, those fallible human beings who decided to drop the bomb came to that conclusion using the best collection of knowledge, instinct, wishful thinking, and bias that they had at hand. If we are critical of the United States and its use of knowledge, instinct, wishful thinking, and bias, we have to be just as critical of the culture of Germany which began the war and of Japan which joined in. Indeed, we would think of the Holocaust much differently than we do today if it were even remotely possible that, without Germany doing it first, the Jews of Europe would have gladly constructed concentration camps to kill millions of Germans instead. We might even say that if Japanese culture had been slightly different, they would have surrendered sooner, or surrendered along with Germany before the bomb was even complete. I don't say this to blame anyone. From the point of view of today, the issue is not blame, but understanding. And we must try to imagine what an experience of total war was like back then. Given that there, are, that there is no reason to believe that Japan or Germany would have hesitated in using incendiary or atomic bombs on the east or west coast of America, the question more generally is what else can a country do against such an enemy but try to do it to them first, human nature and history being what it is, human nature being what it is and history teaching us what it does. George Orwell usually no fan of military force, and rarely a fan of Britain's government, nevertheless realized that the greater enemy, when it arose in the form of Nazism, and had no hesitation saying that to those who objected to the bombing of civilians in Germany, quote, there is something very distasteful in accepting war as an instrument, and at the same time, wanting to dodge responsibility for its, more, for its more barbarous features. Pacifism is a tenable position, provided that you are willing to take the consequences. George Orwell's contemporary, the French diarist Jean Gehenno, himself usually a pacifist, had to admit, I will never believe that men are made for war, but I know that they are not made for servitude either. In other words, no one that I know who wishes the bombs hadn't been dropped also wishes Japan and Germany had won, or wishes that they were living under those governments rather than our own. To be frank, and again I say this more in shame of humanity than in praise of it, 
Those who wonder if lesser use of force could have won the war against Germany and Japan are asking the question, basking in the luxury of a sad victory, purchased with the very excesses they deplore. Indeed, this is what sickens most people, that their lives today exist with the atomic bomb as a reluctant inheritance. It doesn't seem right to sully our liberation of Europe and of the concentration camps with the atomic bomb, but every national virtue has its national vice, existing almost always concurrently, and there is no unknotting them. All of our lives are muddied in this way. The reason the bomb was dropped then seems to be the same reason it was developed in the first place. The United States was afraid of a world where another country had the bomb, and they did not. This appears to be a truth without escape, that this is just the way humanity acts, that is, largely out of fear, and that, and that until the world is rid of aggressors with any inkling of power, this will not change, this fear. Learning to understand and cope with the unavoidable ugliness of our species seems much more worthwhile than becoming a proponent of, quote, world peace, or trotting around signs which say, end all wars, since it is clear that alongside our tribalism, arrogance, and fear, such peace belongs to another world. And until that other world appears, our tribalism and arrogance and fear are, like the decision to drop the bomb, both a travesty and a necessity, both an atrocity and a terrifying attempt at something good, both something that can be mourned but cannot be apologized for, something to be regretted, not as if it hadn't been done, but regretted in the sense that human beings are the way they are, regretted in the sense that atomic weapons became an option at all, regretted in the sense that human beings, apparently so intelligent, can yet so easily back themselves into a corner where the development and use of such weapons becomes unavoidable. The only response I can find to such a situation in which war will always be with us, is to find a way to wage it without pride. And one of the only scriptures or revered documents of any kind that seems to reflect this sad sense of how humanity actually operates is the 31st stanza of the Tao Te Ching, which says that weapons are tools of fear. A decent man will avoid them except in the direst necessity. And it concludes with these words. His enemies are not demons, but human beings like himself. He doesn't wish them personal harm, nor does he rejoice in victory. How could he rejoice in victory and delight in the slaughter of men? He enters battle gravely, with sorrow and with great compassion, as if he were attending a funeral. You don't avoid battle, but you go into battle as if you were attending a funeral. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to beat that bit from the Tao Te Ching. I will add one more thing, and I just came across it today. Uh, if we want to change things, if we want actual peace, or at least a little more peace, and a little less antagonism and violence, uh, the point does not seem to be uh, to outlaw the weapons. 
uh, it seems to be to reform the minds. And as I've been saying, uh, there's if you take the sum total of death and destruction and suffering, that basic prejudice of all kinds from, uh, in, from between countries and cultures, languages and religions, uh, uh, races, um, all of that put together. Uh, the atomic bomb is just a matter of, uh, is almost an anecdote. It's a matter of killing people, large numbers of people, faster than you would have otherwise. Um, the root cause is not, the root, and the root thing to mourn is not that we can kill that many people in three seconds. It is that we find the need to kill them at all. And I came across this, uh, the following in a book about World War I called A World Undone by G.J. Meyer. And if you're looking for a good one-volume history of the First World War, this is a pretty good one. And it talks about, uh, this is from a section called Hearts and Minds about the propaganda of the war. Um, and G.J. Meyer says this, Inevitably, to the extent that the propaganda was effective, it made an end to the fighting more difficult to achieve. And now he quotes uh, someone you thought would have known better and would have been intelligent enough. But of course he had his own issues. And this is Rudyard Kipling. Uh, so when Rudyard Kipling is saying this, you can only imagine what uh, the farmer or the office worker or the machinist is saying. Rudyard Kipling said, however the world pretends to divide itself, there are only two divisions in the world today, human beings and Germans. And of course, there's a German writer out there saying the same thing about the English and the French. Uh, a few pages later, G.J. Meyer says, um, talking about press censorship, of course, it's the press. Uh, and how they did their job of assuring their populations that the war was being won and along the way depicting the enemy as evil incarnate. Their methods were predictable and in retrospect seem sometimes seem ridiculous. The German storyline was that the Reich was fighting a defensive war against a cabal of unscrupulous enemies determined to destroy it. The British and French followed an exactly opposite script, one in which they were defending civilization against Huns who wanted to rule the world. Even the atrocity stories that were staples in the newspapers of the Entente were mirrored in those of the Central Powers. The Germans were reported to be cutting off the hands of French boys so that they could never become soldiers, to be raping children and bayoneting infants. The German public was told that the Russians were poisoning the lakes of East Prussia and cutting off the limbs of captured German soldiers, and the French and Belgians made a specialty of gouging out prisoners' eyes. Lying was endemic. Newspapers ran old photographs of Russian pogroms against Jews as evidence of Germany's rape of Belgium. And officials with access to the facts were not immune. David Lloyd George, long before he became Prime Minister of Britain, was declaring in the public that the new philosophy of Germany is to destroy Christianity. And... So you see my point. Uh, there's, there, there's no, uh, there's, there was no point in World War One, in the midst of it or after, saying 
Let's get rid of these machine guns. Let's get rid of poison gas, but then do nothing about the nature of propaganda, of what people are being taught, what people are being told. In this case, it's the press doing it, but then uh, it's parents teaching their children, it's teachers teaching children, uh, it's friends getting a drink or dinner, uh, trading uh, stories like this. And this is history as well. Um, you have the uh, all the early suspicion about the early Christian church that they're cannibals. Um, anybody who uh, is seen to be different from you uh, is usually in the ancient and medieval world. They either engage in some sort of cannibalism, they want to rape uh, your women, and they want to kidnap your children. And, and that's basically uh, some version of that is QAnon today. When the world gets messed up and when there's high anxiety, uh, the assumption is is that your enemy, whoever the enemy is, is coming after your children, even though uh, that is never actually true. Blood libels against Jews, um, anything that you want to think of. Uh, uh, the same stories told by Germans against the French, that the French would tell against the Germans, etc., etc. And finally, G.J. Meyer says, uh, the results of all the propaganda would be tragic. By raising the stakes of the war beyond the limits of reason, the propagandists ensured that whichever side lost would feel terribly, irredeemably wronged, and that whichever side won would find it difficult to deal rationally with the populations that it had defeated. So it's almost no surprise at all that you end up with another war uh, where the other side is demonized, and uh, and one that just has a slight advance in weaponry. Um, that seems to be the key here, not the fact that it was used, but the reasons that it came to be used at all. It's almost an accident that uh, the discovery of uh, the, the realization that a bomb could be made uh, happened just before the war. Um, it would have happened eventually and uh, preceding some other war in the future that hadn't happened then. What we need to do, if we need to do anything at all, is look at how we look at how we deal with other people, look at how we teach our children to deal with other people, whoever those other people are. Now, there is another side to this, of course. Um, I don't think I will get to it this year. When I repost all of these next year, I will probably have add an extra episode to it. But if anyone wants to read a very good book, um, I would recommend Among the Dead Cities, The History and Moral Legacy of the World War II Bombing of Civilians in Germany and Japan by A.C. Grayling. I read this a few years ago, and I meant, I've been meaning since then, to... Uh, add quotations from that book to this series, but I haven't gotten around to it yet. Uh, I still remained unconvinced, but it is something that is worth looking at. Um, I hope that this has been fruitful in some way. Uh, it has been sort of a powerful experience to read all of these words out loud and I hope to do it again next year. Thank you for listening.
Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.